joining me for another episode of the just checking in podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by ben a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about the mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations i am your host freddie cocker each episode i check in with a very special guest we have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we'll discuss it On this episode, my special guest is an author and poet who has just written a fascinating Watsonall book about football's relationship with mental health, so I had to get him on. His name is Dominic Stevenson. Dom is a writer, professional communicator, and an academy football coach to boot, excuse the pun. Dom has also been a published author since 2015. He has written three books, The Northern Line, I Can't Find Me, and the aforementioned football book, which came out in December 2020. It's called Get Your Head in the Game, an exploration of football's complex relationship with mental health. Dom's writing journey, depression, societal expectations, and the mental health impact that periods of unemployment have had on him are on the menu for this episode. We also discuss the stutter that Dom's lived with and how that has shaped his life both positively and negatively. This is how our check-in went. Dom, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. I read your book, which helps a lot for this chat. How has the feedback been to it now that it's out, mate? Uh, I've had good feedback so far, to be honest. People seem to like it. It's strange because obviously it came out on, so just before Christmas, 7th or 8th of December. And so a fair few people bought it for people for Christmas presents. And so they've not actually read it or they've sort of acknowledged it and I've had quite a few photos of people waving it around on Christmas morning but it's strange because I know people have it I just know they've also not read it yet but the people who have seem to like it and that's important to me and yeah I'm proud it's strange it has felt a bit anticlimactic because of the pandemic and things like that so it's great to be here today and doing Things like this, it gives me the opportunity to talk about it, to reach new audiences. But the sort of more traditional things that I'd be used to haven't happened, which has been strange. I'll get this other thing out of the way first, because you are a Sheffield Wednesday fan. I am a Huddersfield Town fan. We beat you last month, I think. So there's my bragging rights there. Don't worry. This will be the only mention of the 2017 playoff semi-final as well. It's all right. I still haven't forgiven Jordan Rhodes for not taking the penalty in that semi-final, so... I'm not over it anyway. Great stuff, mate. That's the uh, Football Noors chat out of the way. Shall we crack on with the show? Let's dive straight in, mate, and talk about your journey as a writer and author. So tell me first how you got into writing, how your love for it began, and when it became something more than just a hobby. It's always been something that's there alongside playing football when I was younger. I always loved writing. It wasn't something that I seriously considered as a career but when it came to choosing a course for university my dad said if you're going to go do something you'll enjoy and I thought I enjoy writing and in all honesty it served me very well professionally personally the skills I gained at university my creative writing course have allowed me to have a sort of over a decade long career in PR working for the NHS working for charities But with regards to the books, it came about quite slowly because I think I just wasn't ready to do them when I was younger. 
I think these people who say that they don't know what to write, they get sort of a block with their writing. I can understand that because I think people try and force it when they're not ready. You need to spend some time taking in the world and then you can get writing. You wrote two poetry books, like I said in the intro, The Northern Line and I Can't Find Me. Despite the fact that you didn't read much poetry growing up, you just wrote a lot. Can you tell me about how these came about? You said to me off air that they came about more because you were winging it rather than a carefully planned pitch. Is that correct? It wasn't carefully planned at all. I, uh, I'd always have written poetry just because I didn't really have the concentration span to write prose at that point. But they sort of came out in short bursts and it always sounds impressive saying you do poetry and all that kind of stuff. And then it was something that when I was working and commuting, I would spend a little bit of time on each journey just writing a few notes on my phone which then translated to notes in the notepad which translated to poems and then I got in touch with an American poet that I know and said what do you think of these is there any legs on this and she said yes and put me in touch with her publisher who liked it and went for it. You did creative writing at university and you started to take a keen interest in spoken word too Can you tell me a bit about that journey, the long-running spoken word night you created, the voices you wanted to give a platform to, and what benefits that brought to your mental health? I understand one aspect was a desire to get rid of this accidental elitism that occurs in the spoken word space. Is that right? Yeah, I wanted to create a space for people who may be less able to command a platform alongside others and that included people like me who have a stutter disabled people people of color the lgbtqia plus community people with mental health challenges who may not be able to face getting on the stage and doing slam poetry in front of a room of 50 people i just wanted to create somewhere that felt safe and that people felt happy and i started listen softly in 2013 in London and when I moved up to Edinburgh I brought it up here and it's still going and I think that people want poetry to be a really positive thing for community but because there's no money in it people scrap very hard for the few crumbs that are there and so I think inadvertently people when they want funding they try and get a big name They'll do an open mic, but what new performer, what performer with a stutter, what performer in a wheelchair wants to get up before someone who's been going for 15 years, very established, when it's their first time? So I wanted to create a safer space and a lot of venues. And this is something that, because of coronavirus, is more in people's minds, but a lot of venues aren't accessible. I mentioned people in wheelchairs that I've never been to a spoken word night that someone in a wheelchair could go to because they're simply not accessible. And that's no fault of the promoter. That's because there's no money in it. And you take the back room of a pub, you take the upstairs room of a pub. Just touching on the point you made about disabled poets and people in the LGBT community, how proud does that make you when you put on poets from that community on your show and see them perform well? I mean, if anything, it makes me disappointed because I don't want it to be special. That they're so talented, they're so charismatic, they're so incredibly gifted and dedicated to their craft, that I find it really sad that I put them on at my night and then no one will see them again for another year. Because realistically, my night runs once a month. 
I can't have the same people on every month, no matter how gifted and talented they are, because otherwise people would stop coming and then the night would have to cease to exist. And so it makes me sad that I know for a fact that there's people I've booked who've not had another gig until I've booked them again nine months, a year later. And and that makes me incredibly sad. And so I'm proud, but to be honest, it's the very least I can do. Like zero reason why Listen Softly has to stand out. And I hope it doesn't for much longer. That's a really good perspective and something I hadn't thought about before, Dom. So you're completely right on that. Before we talk about the book, Get Your Head in the Game, what impact does writing have on your mental health, do you think? It's always positive i find i know that's not the case for everyone but i find it positive because it's a distraction it's a world that i can jump into i think over time that's probably why i've drifted from poetry to fiction and non-fiction because i enjoy the escapism of a few hours writing rather than what i was doing before which was quite frantic like I've got one tube stop to go I've got to get these lines down of this poem whereas now I can sit and relax I suppose because my day job is in PR that I'm used to writing that I don't need to be warmed up and I think that's something people talk about a lot with writing that they don't feel ready to write that they can't quite get the motivation but for me I spend all day writing so my typing fingers um exercised warmed up my mind's going i know how to get words down that doesn't mean they'll be any good but i know how to get them down let's talk about the behemoth part of this topic which is your latest book get your head in the game what made you embark on the project set the scene for the listeners in regards to the stats around mental health and how on earth did you get roger miller to write the foreword with regards to how it came about, I have been going to football for years. My first game was in 1989 when I was four years old. I've always loved football, but have always felt that footballers underserved the mental health community. I've always felt it's underserved men, and particularly working class men. The type of men who are least likely to access their local mental health services, the least likely to ask for help. And that's an area that's massively under-researched as well, that you ask about stats. But we don't know how many people won't ask for help, presumably because they're the same people who won't fill out a YouGov survey. So it's a very difficult audience to crack, but it's an audience that need people to talk to them. And one thing that I found is that a lot of writers intend to do incredible good, but they do it in a very academic, very considered, very thoughtful way where there's no room for error. There's no room for pause or change or compromise or understanding of the context of the people they're talking to. And so what I wanted to do was write a book that used football as a vehicle to enable people, and not just men, the the best reaction to books so far has been from women, actually, but men, because they are often less likely to talk, to start to have discussions around their mental health and start to just acknowledge it. Not necessarily to do anything about it or talk to people, just acknowledge it and say, actually, I feel a bit rubbish. And that's fine. I'll feel a bit rubbish for a bit. But I do feel it. And that felt very important to me. I grew up in a working class area with a working class family who loved me very much. Very privileged, but I also 
now that I've moved away and look back, I see how ignored that community was by consecutive governments, by local government. And the local councillors in the area that I grew up in are still the people that are trying to starve the local football team with their money just so they can have a box. So that happens. And with regards to Roger Miller, as a child, I loved his style of play. I loved his passion, his enthusiasm. And we can all remember, well, a lot of people listening won't be as old as me, but go on YouTube or any of the things the kids do nowadays and type in Roger Miller's celebration. And he did this amazing corner flag celebration, which I always loved to emulate and sort of mimic when I was a a child playing football. And he was just a hero. And I thought, I want someone to do the forward who I want to hear from. Someone who I think has something to say. And so in all honesty, I just emailed him and asked. And we got chatting about the book, about the issues in the book, and had some back and forth. And then he agreed to do it. And I think it's a really kind and generous forward. And I was super pleased that he agreed to do it. The book is crafted with loads of interviews with current and former players across men's and women's football at loads of levels. Let's start with the Dalian Atkinson story because it's often forgotten in football, perhaps because it's an uncomfortable story the football community doesn't want to address, both in the mental health story and the ugly way he died. Yeah, he is someone that, again, for fans of 90s football, he was a brilliant player, sort of one of those, I think you'd probably call him a slight enigma he could really pull out the hat and do brilliant things and then other times he was one of those players who just seemed to sort of vanish on the pitch and you'd not necessarily know they were there but he sort of gave everything to the clubs that he played for and that's why there's such an outpouring of grief when his life was taken away from him and I think because he was black because he had mental health issues and I know that the trial has been Put off again, I think, because of coronavirus, so not loads can be said. But he was in contact with the police and died. Which, in the month that he died, there's four other black or Asian men who had similar experiences and sadly all lost their lives. And it's not something that sits comfortably with me, the difference in which people, and and particularly the police force, but that is something that, goes out into public that they see a black man with mental health challenges and view it very differently to a white man with mental health challenges. And that's not being particularly controversial. We only have to look at the world to see that's true. He played in the first game that I ever went to. It was one of the many things I struggled with in the book, that it felt perfect that this player who was at my first game had mental health challenges, died at the hand of the police, and... I was writing a book about mental health and football. It seemed to fit too well, and that left me with an immense sense of guilt, which is why I wanted to talk about his football within the book and his skill and how he was admired by people, rather than just the tragic end. But I did also go to, I feel, reasonable lengths to talk about how he was failed by football because people stopped caring, people didn't, pick up on the signs throughout his career and people left him and because football is a brutal game with regards to results and if someone isn't performing you haven't got time to say why you haven't got time to ask them how they're feeling you drop them you put someone else in 
you sold them off to the reserves or the under-21s if they, you know what I mean, are late for training or whatever. And so, yeah, football has to become a kind of sport because we have generations and generations of people now who may need mental support but aren't seeking it because they've been told it's wrong to. I want to pick out three really powerful stories next, Dom, which is Sheffield Wednesday, Sam Hutchinson, Calvin Beef, David Cox, and then the tragic case of Josh Lyons. I want to start with David Cox first. Can you tell the listeners about his story and what you learned? As I believe at one point, he had fans telling him to hang himself after a game. Yeah, David Cox is a really incredible guy and someone who I love talking to, full of admiration for and full of respect. And he had, at a very young age, challenges with his mental health, which led to him self-harming, which led to suicide attempts. And they were ignored time and time again by his clubs. And he spoke to me of one instance where he cut himself and couldn't train for a long time. And the club sort of didn't do that much. They sort of acknowledged it as an injury, but not as a wider issue to support him with. And he said that was something that was a continuous theme throughout his career until sort of later on, when he was maybe a bit more able to speak up, that people didn't take his mental health challenges as seriously as they should have and put him in very difficult positions. And he spoke out three, four years ago now about his mental health challenges. And he told a newspaper about how he tried to hang himself and the reaction of some air quote fans was to I mean effectively try and abuse him into trying again and abuse his family when they were at the ground with him and the strength of character that David has shown to not overcome because he's not past his mental health challenges but to live with to control to temper is extraordinary and full of admiration and I think he's a fine example because he's managed to keep the best bits of himself he's managed to keep the edge the competitiveness the skill the motivation the talent and I remember a friend at university who had to go on antidepressants and her fear was very much that she would lose her edge and she'd lose the motivation to write, to do her exams and stuff. And I think that is a great fear for a lot of people because people don't talk about mental health openly and honestly. And I think that's why a lot of myths, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of false information carry on. And a lie is halfway around the world while the truth is putting its shoes on. For you, Dom, as a Sheffield Wednesday fan, meeting Sam Hutchinson, one of your favourite Sheffield Wednesday players, clearly had a massive impact on you. Can you tell me a bit about Sam's story and the issues you discussed? Yeah, he was young. He was in his late teens when he had to hang up his boots through bad injury. And then he fought back to restart his career in his early 20s. He played for Chelsea, Forest, Wednesday, Vietas Arnhem. And he's just an extraordinary character. He's full of heart, full of compassion, full of kindness. And we spoke about his journey and about what motivated him, how he was supported by various managers to talk about his mental health, to seek treatment and support, and how club doctors worked with him. And personally, I found it incredibly moving that, as you say, he's a hero of mine, someone that 
looked up to for his on-the-pitch prowess, his crunching tackles, and someone as well who, as a person, I have a great deal of respect for and had a great deal of respect before I, I even met him. He's spoken a lot on the radio, in the media about mental health, and he actively does a lot to support the community and it was a real honor and people say don't meet your heroes but i would say to them go for it because they might surprise you and they may be some of the most brilliant people that you have had the pleasure of spending time with the most powerful quote i took from your interview with sam was this one he said quote you see people killing themselves because the abuse they receive online and you just have to think is that a good way for society to act aren't people's lives worth a bit more respect How did that feel when he said that to you? It's always a difficult one to think about that because you see it all the time that you're immune to it now, I think. That nowadays when someone says, I've had death threats, I've had rape threats, people threaten my children, you almost have to do a performative, I'm shocked, when really you're not shocked because the view of humanity, of people online has really bottomed out that I don't really expect anything else from a lot of people, which is a sad indictment of society. And I think the difference is now that the sort of pub bore, the person who got drunk and sat in the corner, you know, I mean, the kind of person who talks about Schrodinger's immigrant, the immigrant that comes across and takes his job and the immigrant who also takes his benefits, that kind of pub bore can now sit anonymously in their basement and threaten people and abuse people and hate people. And I think only two weeks ago that someone sent a rape threat to Barry Bannon's one-year-old daughter. That shocked me because Barry Bannon is one of the few Wednesday players to still have any of their personal life on social media. Whereas a lot of them, there's been a marked change over the last few years. They've withdrawn, they've taken away sort of that personal access that they once gave because of threats, because of abuse. And I mean, threats and abuse is kind of the best bit of the worst bit. If it's only threats or abuse, nowadays you kind of think, oh, well, that's just part and parcel of life. But yeah, as, as Sam said that, People push to the very edge. It like barely a week goes by that you don't see a tragic story in the newspapers or online of a child, a young person who's sadly taken their own life because they've been cyberbullied to death. And not only are there no consequences, but there's also no support for the people who do the bullying. And there's no support because mental health services are cut throughout the bullying process that people can tackle even less nowadays I think than when I was at school that at least the people bullied me the people bullied other people they got the odd detention there was a very slight reason for them not to do it whereas now no one knows they're doing it because they're doing it online they're doing it on their phones they're doing it on their computers and it's not tackled it's not discussed there's no forums to really do anything about it and again i know we'll talk later about toxic masculinity but it comes down to that 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 people say oh well they're obviously a bit wet because they can take it they're a bit of a snowflake blah, blah blah and it's all so toxic that people should be able to cope with bullying rather than think that bullying shouldn't happen 
Let's talk about the story of Josh Lyons now, because this is the stigma, as you mentioned. This is where football is letting its people down, particularly in academy football. Michael Calvin's book, No Hunger in Paradise, outlines this arguably broken system in more depth. Can you tell me a bit about Josh Lyons and why his story is such a damning indictment on English football? He wasn't the last academy player to take his own life either. As you say, he was an academy player who was let go from numerous clubs and provided with by all accounts, no support. And that is what the coroner said at the inquest. That's what his family said, and that's what the clubs involved have admitted to since. And for me, the big thing is that people turn around with people like Josh and say, but I've been let go from a job. I've been made redundant. What's the matter? Why do they feel that way? They shouldn't. And my response to that would be that I've been let go from jobs, but no one spent the first 10, 15 years of my life saying you're going to be a middle manager in a children's charity in Scotland. No one put that expectation on me. No one said, no one spent years building me up. No one spent years calling me charity dom. Whereas Sam Hutchinson mentioned that when he retired from football, the first time people called him Football Sam, that he went to a university. And people called him Football Sam, Sam from Chelsea, that there's no escape. And it becomes so much part of your identity and people are so proud and people put so much weight on your shoulders. And I probably give you a tenor if many of my family and friends could tell you what I even do for a job. Yet with someone like Josh, it's so ingrained and so much pressure, so much of life is built around being a footballer. And then when it's taken away and there's no support there, that is impossible for someone to cope with. That's so challenging. It puts them in such a vulnerable position in a way that if you're let go from a factory job or a PR job or whatever type of job, that you can sort of cope with it because you pick yourself up, you move on, you get something else. And with football, everything you've aimed for for your whole life that is just taken away in a heartbeat that it didn't surprise me reading about Josh's story. It didn't surprise me reading about other footballers it's happened to. And sadly, it won't surprise me when it happens again. I did speak to Nick Cox in the book from Manchester United, who was wonderful, one of the most brilliant people I've ever spoken to. And he spoke about the support that Manchester United offer now and about where he perceived failings in the past. But Ultimately, that's Manchester United. They have the money. They kept all their youth team on who were being let go during coronavirus just so they had some money. They've got that kind of resource. Once you get below that, to your Sheffield Wednesdays, to your Huddersfield, how many promising youngsters have been let go from either of our respective teams just because we can't afford to keep them on and take the risk? Yeah, I just think that Football has to be aware of the hype it gives itself, that it cannot forget that children from the minute they're born are given football shirts and footballs. They're encouraged to follow that as a dream, as a career, and expectations are high. The usual precautions and managing expectations are often lost. And then you're ripping the rug out of someone who has no life experience, no experience of dealing with failure of vulnerability at the age of 17 18 when they're still growing and still developing and i think we have to be more careful and more open about supporting these youngsters 
outside of Man United, mate, reading the book, I was looking for the academy leaders you interviewed to give me some evidence that Josh's death and other kids who have taken their own lives after being let go wouldn't be in vain. And to be honest, maybe it's me as a sceptic or a cynic, all I read was a kind of load of lip service and sort of waffle. What is your perspective on aftercare and academies? Because Carlo Ancelotti's mind room at AEC Milan at least seemed one good idea to progress. And I've seen that replicated in normal workplaces in a professional environment. But what is your perspective on it? I mean, I think it probably is a bit cynical to say it's lip service. I think people like Nick Cox do an extraordinary job. But the fact is it comes down to financing and funding. And coronavirus has really shone a light on how poor football clubs are, really, that they are a passion for so many communities and often not nurtured as businesses, which means that they don't have much in the reserves, don't have much in the tank, and people on short-term contracts often, and youth players sign on for a year. So where is the desire to get in psychologists, get in you know what I mean, mental health professionals to work with them for someone who isn't really an investment for them. And that is a cynical way to see it, but I think that's true. I just think there is a lack of resource available to people, and I think that that is damaging players and youth players. And I think that, again, we look at the top clubs for best practice, but that can't be replicated all down the line. So I think some just don't bother. And I think it comes down to the individual coach rather than structures in place. And I think people talk about Leeds and that chap they've got managing them. And they talk about how, you know what I mean, he's revolutionised the club and blah, blah, blah. But he'll go and they'll panic and try and get a younger version of him to replicate them who won't follow through like he has. And they'll fall like a stone again. And it's so dependent on individuals there's not the structures in place to support people. And that's the damning thing, that you look at Brentford. How many players are manager? Well, I don't know who Brentford's manager is. They've had several over the last few years, all of which have played the same type of football. They've bought the same kind of players, sold the same kind of players for lots of money, and they're growing as a club, slowly but surely they're growing. But the identity is Brentford. It's not a certain manager, whereas... Leeds is Belisa. Do you know what I mean? Manchester United, they were Sir Alex Ferguson for 20-odd years. Look at Arsenal. Wenger left and no one can stand in his shoes. And and I think that it will happen with Klopp at Liverpool. It'll happen with Zidane at Madrid. Because the structure's in every place. It's about individuals. And with mental health, that can sadly have deadly consequences. At the end of every chapter you include this view from the terrace, which is a really nice perspective from fans about how football helps their mental health. However, what happens when it goes wrong? What happens when fans are so entrenched in their clubs and their club is such a massive part of their identity, like like you said, with players and being let go, that when their team is down or worse, they go down with it? I mean, I think that is always the fear for me, that football has long been an escapism. It's a working class escapism. Again, it primarily for a lot of years was the domain of men for various reasons, but it's a working class escapism and it was that one opportunity to shine a bit of light on the week. But the difference is 20 years ago, 30 years ago now, you could go to a football game and by the next day you've forgotten it 
Well, it's been and gone, and you support the team, you cherish the team, you cheer on the team, you boo the team, you go to a pub afterwards with your mates and talk about the team. And on Monday morning, because people didn't move like they did now, you talk to local fans about the local match you'd all been to. Whereas, obviously, for me, I'm a Sheffield Wednesday fan, but I lived in London and Edinburgh all my adult life. And so I've never had anyone to talk to about football in the workplace. Whereas now, you go to the match. You spend half time tweeting about the match. You watch the second half. You tweet your way to a pub where you sit and probably ignore your mates while you're on your phone. You go home. You get into an argument with someone because... You thought Joey Pulapesi played well today and someone else thought it was crap. And you know what I mean? That shouldn't have been a penalty. Oh, it definitely was a penalty. That was a foul, should have been sent off. You get into arguments which quickly escalate into what wouldn't be considered reasonable behaviour in a pub, in a workplace. And then that sticks with you. And you turn away from the good things in your life. You turn away from a relaxing Saturday evening with your family or the nice meal that you plan to cook for someone over the weekend. And you turn away from that and you can't let it go. You spend the first half of your week bemoaning how crap the previous game was. Spend the second half of your week worried about how crap the next game's going to be. And I think that we need to find ways to detach from that. That it's not even that people are so passionate so engaged with their clubs it's that all the things that for years we didn't do that yeah we'd always do you know what I mean? if we saw someone of our rivals we'd always go oh look at them blah, blah. and you know what I mean have a bit of a grumble about them to the person next to us but nowadays you get to go online and hunt these people down for want of a better word to abuse to hate follow to respond to and it grinds my goat that i see sheffield Wednesday fans all the time doing piss tape videos pictures responding to sheffield united and i enjoyed the rivalry i enjoy the steel city derby i enjoy that clash of the titans as it were but i don't enjoy going and picking on random people because of what side of a city they were born on and what colour shirt they choose to wear. But do I feel that enough to go and like spend my whole life abusing their fans on the internet? No. It makes me really sad that that is the case. And I think that social media has been hugely responsible for that. Obviously, a big part of the stigma in football, mate, when it comes to mental health is discrimination, homophobia, sexism and racism in the stands and on social media. Whilst awareness days like Rainbow Laces serve a purpose, and I'm sure they help a lot of LGBT fans, I'm not going to take that away from them. For me, a lot of these awareness days just allow football to focus on it for one day in a year and then push it under the carpet for the 364 other days. Neville Southall talked a lot about this in his book, Mind Games, and how we can do more to bring this more to the surface and do other things and other initiatives. There seems to be not a lot of push for policies and attitudes I don't think will change very quickly as a result. What's your take on it? I mean, I wholeheartedly agree that mental health awareness, racism, sexism, rainbow laces, things like that, they're very performative and they serve a purpose. And I know a lot of fans who, as you say, feel very encouraged by such things. But with football clubs, it's the fear of the dissenting voices that stops them putting it into policy that, you know what I mean, Black Lives Matters, like, 
the world isn't full of videos of white men being dragged out of shops and, you know what I mean, murdered in the street because, you know what I mean, tried to sell single cigarettes instead of packs. Like, and I wrote an article for the Sheffield Star about why black lives should matter to football fans in Sheffield. And I said that Liam Palmer, our black right back, he was something like 19 times more likely to get pulled over driving home from the match than I was. I haven't even got a driving licence. I don't know why it's so hard to... Well, I do know why it's so hard to get, because the celebration, the awareness is very performative, as you say, that is good for a photo shoot. But this is where fans need to raise their voice more, because we, in some ways, we accept that football is a business. In other ways, we don't. That fans demand a lot from their clubs. It's mostly about the football. But what I want to do is follow what teams like St. Pauli, what Dulwich Hamlet and others like that do. I want fans to demand social justice, uh, social awareness. I want them to make the effort. And having one awareness day does not a good mental health campaign make. But it's easy that they can have on their website and on their social media pictures for weeks about how they celebrated that one day. And it makes them look great. And no one cares anymore. No one cares deeper than that. Or if they do, they don't have the time or the resources to care deeper than that. Despite your book literally being about mental health, mate, all the football clubs you asked didn't want to take part in it or agree for their players to be interviewed, which I'm glad you called them out on. You said, quote, It seems that many football clubs are happy to embrace mental health awareness as long as it's restricted to posters around the ground and shirt sponsorship. And as long as they're not the ones in the spotlight, end quote. How do you square that lip service with the inaction of reality? It's because if football clubs let people in, then a light will be shone on how they are failing their players. And this is just the players we hear about. Aaron Lennon, Clark Carlisle, Robert Enker. Players that were pushed to the very edge. All very well documented. Enker sadly lost his life and... Thankfully, Carlisle and Lennon didn't. But you look at someone like Clark Carlisle, a professional footballer, was the head of the PFA at the time, I believe. He got to a point where he walked out in front of a lorry on the motorway. And obviously, I can't speak for anyone's mental health journey than my own, but I feel that I have a fair few sort of... That's not the next step on my journey, even if I didn't care about myself. To me, it doesn't seem like a... I feel a bit depressed, that's what I'll do. There seems to be a long way from that first feeling of it in yourself to the actions that Clark Carlisle took, for example. And throughout that time, he was seen by doctors, managers, players, co-workers, everything who didn't notice, or if they did, they may not have necessarily cared enough to say. And that is super challenging. And they were top-level clubs. So once you open the doors, you see that they don't provide adequate mental health support. They don't provide that kind of emotional support like they do. And it goes deeper there. If on... I mean, Wednesday's games are cancelled at the minute in January 21 because of coronavirus. But if on the next game, one of Wednesday players came out and said, or if the club came out and said, so-and-so isn't playing... They're feeling anxious, they're feeling depressed, they're not playing. They'd never play for the club again because the fans would make it impossible. Then if they came out and said he's broken his toe, they'd be like, oh, that's fine. 
why is a broken toe any different to a mind that someone feels is broken? It's not. But yeah, clubs don't let you in because it shines a light on their failings, and that's bad PR. Standing with Prince William and doing a photo shoot, putting up some posters, having a minute's applause before a match, people see that it's very performative and it works in getting the PR. But it fails the 40,000 people stood in the stadium. It fails the wider community. It fails the players. It fails the staff. And that's a real shame that PR is more important than lives. The interview you did with a secret footballer, I think, emphasises this true stigma, Dom, on display in football. Players don't want to talk about their mental health, like you said, because if they do, they might never play for the club again if it was made public. Or they might be dropped by ignorant, uneducated managers. Clubs might not sign them or question their mindset, like what happened to Danny Rose. Or it might be weaponised by opposition fans or players. One very well-known nasty piece of work in the game, a player which you quoted, I won't mention here. Tell me more about what he said, obviously, without mentioning his name, and then what policy ideas you outlined at the end of the book, which can make a start on tackling the stigma. He talked very openly about the more systematic failings. And I think that's, again, it goes back to being performative. The football clubs don't put in place proper policies around mental health, and there is little incentive for others to do it until it's too late, until people reach crisis point. And again, as with Carlisle, as with Lennon, as with others, that it's only when they reach crisis point that people talk about them. And the PFA, I think, are doing a good job now. But for many years, we're not necessarily doing a good job because they didn't recognise it. Do you know what? This isn't new. You had people like Wenger coming in in the mid-90s and talking about health, mental health, imagine what giant of a man, giant of an intellect, got Tony Adams to give up drinking, to get his career back on track with regards to fitness and so on, in his 30s and gave him years more of a career. Tony Adams is not a wallflower, like I'm sure he had his views, and the winning culture within Arsenal at that time having this effete Frenchman come in and tell them that it's all wrong must have been quite the shock. So it's not new, and yet the services provided for footballers, for ex-footballers, are all relatively new. But I think you've got podcasts like yours, obviously, podcasts like Under the Cosh that talks to current and ex-footballers that are just normalising mental health, and that's the important thing, and it will follow. I left the book quite optimistic for the future of football, for future mental health in football. I think it's been in a sorry state. I think it's still in a sorry state. But I feel optimistic for the future because finally people like the secret footballer, people like the guys on Under the Cosh, and even people don't take them that seriously. But you look at your Robbie Savages, your Jimmy Bullards, your Dion Dublins, people like that, who all very openly talk about mental health, physical health, football, the impact it has on society, in podcasts, on TV, and you've got to admire them. And with regards to the end of the book and the ideas that there, they came from my desire to make people remember why they fell in love with football, why they once saw football as an escapism and why they now see it as a chore, that it dominates people's lives and as we've discussed, that you can't get away from it now because people haven't got it in them to put their phones down. 
in all honesty. So you can't get away. So you need to cope with it better. But I can remember being four, being five, six, seven, and going to Hillsborough and having my dad take me an hour early so I could stand in the car park with my autograph book and, you know, we meet Des Walker, Colton Palmer, Chris Waddle, David Hurst, and all the heroes and get their autographs and get photos with them. And it was a joy. And I still, when I went to interview Sam Hutchinson at the Wednesday training ground, I got there an hour early with my autograph book and got photos with the players and and things like that. Because I still feel a real joy, a real love for football. And I want to ignite that in people again. And, And for people to remember that, you know what I mean? It's cool to wear your club colours and wear a scarf, wear a shirt. Like, it's nice to celebrate the really positive the game that you love and embrace. And I think more people should, yeah, take time to think about why they fell in love with the game, remember what it felt like to be a child in love with the game and have that as the focus of how you have football in your life. I've got one more question on this book, mate. You said, quote, I have cried and jumped for joy at different stages of this book, end quote. What has it taught you about yourself, do you think? It's taught me that I am more at risk from life than I thought I was. There is such a low expectation on society of what dealing with mental health is about that one can talk about it. People applaud you. People give you great status as a mental health advocate for merely talking about it, for doing the least work possible. They will celebrate you till the cows come home because a lot of people aren't doing any work. But then you examine your actions and you see people who say, I was really down and this behaviour really affected my family, really affected me at work, really affected everything. And then they say what that behaviour was. They say, I don't know, I was snappy with people. I had low patience. I wasn't meeting the needs of my loved ones and my partner. Then you go away and you think, oh, crap, that's me. And then you think about that and you think about what you can do to help yourself. And yeah, it made me feel more vulnerable in one way, but it empowered me that these heroes of mine were showing me that there is a way forward. There is a way to step back. There is a way to manage mental health, cope with it, to seek support. And they were coming from an environment of sort of eliteness and they still didn't have the support but were coping. So I felt empowered by them, but it also scared me a bit. We've talked about Dom, the author. Let's talk about your own journey in a bit more detail now, mate. I asked this question to every guest first. So talk me through your early life, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, do you think you had any early mental health experiences? Who's the Dom we meet here? Um, I mean, fairly normal childhood, loving family and all that. And I think for me, that's always been important to convey and remember that I don't come from a bad and broken and beaten background. Like I come from a family who love me very much, who support me, who have always been there, always facilitated my dreams my goals encourage me been really positive because i think that sometimes people have the idea that people with mental health challenges have to have experienced a trauma have to have experienced 
some tragedy, some form of abuse. But again, that comes down to the misinformation in society. I think, for me, it's always hard looking back because, again, we have very poor emotional education in this country. And so what is normal behaviour? What is depression? What is anxiety? People get anxious about their exams. They don't necessarily suffer from anxiety in the long term. They get anxious. They suffer from anxiety for a very limited period and then move on and some people can't move on and I think that for me it wasn't until I sort of went to college and went to university that I felt that I experienced anything beyond normal emotions. I was bullied at school and you know I mean some of the same people went to my college but by then I made new friends who sort of empowered me to tackle that and it was sort of resolved itself and then you go to university and it was strange because met a lot of new people a lot of very interesting people and you sort of get so carried away in the joy of it that you blink and then three years have gone and you're saying goodbye to them and then I sort of struggled with employment and so on after university and moved back home to Grimsby to work and yeah I think that's where I'd first identify something more beyond normal and so I I happened to work for the local NHS trust and so there was kind of no escaping from it they were very good they offered me CBT sessions which I went to uh, which were useful but I understand I was in a very privileged position of working you know I mean one corridor down from the people I needed help from. When we spoke off air mate just what you said there about your period of unemployment you said you didn't have a permanent job until 2012 prior to that you spent four to five years temping you said to me this created a constant sense of struggle if you could just tell me what you meant by that and the impact it had on your mental health it was a constant sense of struggle because for four or five years I was on a week-to-week contract and that's the equivalent of if you said to me today do you want to go out for a beer next Sunday I couldn't say yes based on not knowing if I would be employed and if the money I would be potentially spending on a beer would have to be rent or food money. And in kids' cartoons, when you've got the younger sibling just prodding the older sibling, not in a way that hurts them, but just in a way that's constant. And it's that constant drain that, like Christmas, like I still don't care about Christmas. I had a nice Christmas. I went to see my family. I enjoyed it. But you know what I mean? I like the time away from work and stuff and part of that comes from the fact that for years I didn't know if I'd have any money to buy people Christmas presents I didn't know if I'd have any money to get home at Christmas and see my family to afford the train because other people had this stranglehold over my life that they wouldn't commit to employing me even for a month they were doing it on a week-by-week contract because they could and that is so challenging and it dictates everything you do do you go out for dinner tonight i don't know because i might not have a job next week do you go out for a beer i don't know i might not have a job do you buy someone a christmas present don't know might not have a job might not have money and this was on the back of the global recession of 2008 the tory dictatorship that came in propped up by the lib dems in 2010 is on the back of all that so it wasn't a happy time for employment. You can't talk to anyone because, oh, 
you should feel lucky to have a job. No, I have a job, but being treated like crap doesn't make you feel lucky. That makes me really sad. People should have higher expectations for life than at least you've got a job, at least you can pay some nameless, faceless landlord rent or a faceless bank. That's not lucky. That's a crap society. And so being made to feel like you have to be appreciative because someone will employ you for the next week isn't a good state of mind. And when it goes on and on and on and you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, like even the permanent job I got in 2012, it started off as a temp contract. It was only once I'd started that it was made permanent. And yeah, that was such a challenging time. You can never put your head above the parapet. Like I didn't have a holiday. I know that's such a middle-class bougie thing to say I didn't have but I didn't have a holiday as in a weekend at the beach or going to Cornwall or Spain or wherever from leaving home in 2004 to 2014 because I could never put the money aside because it always had to be there in case I was going to be out of work and to be honest I've only just stopped paying for that time a couple of years ago now because the overdrafts you build up and stuff they are there to haunt you for a long time but then people say you should be lucky to have a job one thing you also found difficult mate was people checking in with you about your employment status I'm sure they were all doing it from a good place but repeating bad news to 30 plus people is pretty crap isn't it yeah absolutely everyone has the best intentions and like particularly at that time there was a lot of friends of mine from university who were all seeking jobs and we were all trying to encourage each other. And so you go to an interview and you've told everyone you've got an interview, people help you prepare, and then afterwards you have to go back and say, oh, I didn't get it. But you have to tell everyone. And no one realises they're the ninth person that you told. They all want the story. They all want to know how the interview went, where it went well, where it went wrong. They all wanted to say you probably performed better than you thought you did, that it's their fault, not yours. And you know what I mean? Whether it's my fault or theirs, if I can't buy the rent, if I can't buy food, the matter is, problem is, people have become so normalised to being abused and being let down by society that that's the expectation now, that you will be abused and let down by society. And if you don't accept that, you're the one in the wrong. And that means that, and then you see it now, people will look down on people who are on benefits, who use the societal safety net that we all pay into. You know what I mean? With the lunches and Marcus Rashford, for every five comments about how rubbish it is, what the government have done to hungry, poor children, you get one or two saying, well, I can feed my family, they should feed theirs. Well, it's not my responsibility. And these problems within society are so deep-rooted and it causes a lot of shame. And because I felt very uncomfortable in 2008, 9, 10, talking about employment and so on, now I recently got a new job. I didn't tell anyone that I had the interview. But beyond that, I didn't tell family, I didn't tell friends because I didn't want to have to go around again and go, oh, I haven't got this. Because, as you say, people care. My aunt cares and she wants to support me. It seems impersonal to get everyone on a conference call and talk it through just the once. And I always find it challenging because I don't want to let people down. 
And I've got a niece and a nephew now who I want to set a good example to. And it's difficult to feel like you're setting a good example when you're struggling. But chances are you are. You know what I mean? There's someone out there who's struggling with employment, with anything else, that chances are the people they want to support, be there for, to be looked up to by... If you're that aware that you can feel that pain, they probably do look up to you and have a lot of respect for you that you don't understand. Let's go back to your upbringing a little bit, mate, because when we spoke off air, you talked a lot about the frustrations at the traditional life construct people in your hometown fell into and which you attempted to shun. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Maybe your generation's life outcomes and the disregard you had for what most people would deem as economic success? I mean, it was less trying to shun it and more trying to achieve what I wanted. Because I think that if you look in, again, normally right wing, but put media publications, listen to TV, radio, people talk about how my generation of people can't buy a house because they spent too much on avocados and lattes. But really, we can't buy a house because when our parents bought a house, they got paid maybe £4,000 a year, but their house was £18,000 a year. I get around £35,000 a year. A house in a place where I could work, because my job is relatively specific to sort of cities built up areas, £700,000. That's the difference that... People are so intent on profit and everything is about inflation. Everything is about growth. But oddly, it's not about growth in wages or growth in workers' rights. It's about growth in companies' pockets. It's about growth in share prices. It's about growth in house prices. And that divide is leaving a lot of people very stranded. And I think that, yeah, I grew up in a working-class town where a lot of people got to a level of education, then went into a workplace, met someone, bought a house, got married, had kids. And I, my value structure is different, that I valued doing a job that I felt gave back to society. I valued going to theatre. I valued having a range of sort of different arts venues around where I lived and, and things like that. And I valued a whole range of things which are different to what I sort of grew up around. And my family always, always facilitated my love of arts, my passion for doing things a bit different. And at every step of the way, my family have been the ones that have been there for me as I've gone along, as I've explored, as I've adventured. I'm not even done it in a reckless way, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not jacked everything in and gone to live in a hut in Peru and taken whatever that leaf thing is, films about backpacking, talk about people chewing on. But I've had a nice time and I've not been particularly frivolous. And yet I have zero money, zero savings because the expectations and things we don't even like to talk about, that people live a long time now, that we are probably as near to medically advanced as we will be for the next 500 years. Like, I'm very grateful and thankful that three of my four grandparents are still alive and I get to see them and spend time with them, and I'm very grateful and very lucky for that. But they're all sort of very past an age where 50 years ago they'd have been alive. 
And what I think the generation before us, a lot of them don't understand, is that what they saw as natural, at the age of 20, they would inherit a house off their 60-year-old grandparent who passed away. That isn't the case now, that I'm in my mid-30s, and my grandparents are alive, and my grandparents' great-grandchildren, some of them are nearly getting to secondary school age. And they weren't born to sort of teenage parents. They were born to parents in their late 20s, 30s. And that life has changed so much. But people are so precious about money and about securing their status that they won't recognise that. And that leads to a great level of frustration. And that makes me feel like I want to shun that a bit. That realistically now, I could pay rent for every month of my life. Rent, which is a lot more than a mortgage would be and still never pay the cost of a house. And that's incredible. I could rent something for the rest of my life for 50 years, 60 years, and still not come close to paying off the perceived value of the property. The final part of your journey I wanted to discuss in more detail, Dom, was your stutter. And we've mentioned it a bit previously in the pod. Can you tell the listeners about your relationship with your stutter how it affected you growing up, as some of your friends, I believe, don't believe you have one. I mean, I've I've had it for years and years and years since I was a little kid. And it's something that affected me in school because people, do you know what I mean? Kids are cruel. People pick up on it. And then you have teachers who were not educated in how to work with children who may have had speech impediments, and they're very much of the opinion that when it comes out to reading in class, you just need to power through. But for me, I would get a book and I would count how many people were before me, count how many paragraphs there were before I had to read. If it was a paragraph that began with an I, for example, I'd be almost in tears by the time it got to me to read because that wasn't a letter that I could really say. I still can't start sentences with an I apropos of nothing. But also by now, and I'm 35, so I've probably spent 30 years with it. It's like any challenge that people face, that I can work around it now. I can pause. I can have a bit more vocal control. I've realised now that, for example, you're not going to laugh at me and that other people aren't. And if anyone is listening who laughs at someone having a stutter that's kind of their problem now but i have to say gareth gates did a lot for the speech impediment community and i had a very long conversation with him once about how he'd helped and really fantastic person it's one of those things that people don't often believe i have a stutter because as you discovered from this i talk a lot i can talk a lot comfortably but i'm very aware so the metaphor that i use is like you're going down a river in a dinghy and you see a rock in the water and so for me that rock is a word that i mean that river is my mouth the dinghy is the words and the rocks are the words that i would struggle to say and it's not like for example i can't say ironing board and have to avoid the word ironing board it's a case of sometimes i can't say the word ironing board for a range of reasons, like if I'm stressed, if I'm, do you not mean think about something else? If I'm a bit anxious, there's all sorts of reasons. But that rock is a word I can't say. But now, 30 years on, I can navigate around it. 
and I can talk around it. And the thing that disappoints me about having a speech impediment is I wonder where I'd have been without it. Do you know what I mean? I'm 35. I've got a successful career. I've just released a book. I'm doing fine. Perfectly average. But where could I have been if I didn't have it? And part of me is now understanding that that is a societal problem. Like with mental health, like with so much, that it's not me who was in the wrong. It's society who was in the wrong for normalising fluency above everything else, for saying that... And again, people never explicitly say these things, which is why people can easily deny they exist. But people normalise fluency. No one wants to see someone stand up at a conference and stutter their way through a speech. No one votes for... I mean, saying that, Joe Biden was elected and he has a stutter. But Joe Biden's also spent the last 55 years of his life in American politics, working on it and undoubtedly having a lot of support. But no one wants to um, go to a team meeting at work and have to listen to someone who's stuttering because fluency is normalised and any form of alternative ability is not. In the same way you go to a conference and often there's not a wheelchair ramp because no one expects anyone to need a wheelchair. And so there's always that bit of panic where they feel awkward, the person in the wheelchair feels awkward and everyone feels awkward and then everyone has to do an awkward laugh and then the person in the wheelchair knows that that's how life is because people don't care about them. So yeah, like I've sort of stopped beating myself up over it now. I've stopped wondering what could have been and start wondering what change I can make for the future. Our final topic of conversation on every pod, Dom, and it's one I try and have with my guests if I can, is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, and you can definitely include circumstances or exclude them at time of recording, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? It's an incredibly challenging time for the whole world. I'm not doing amazingly because I'm isolated. I can't see my friends, my family. I'm having to work harder than ever to stay okay. And sometimes it's exhausting working that hard just to be okay. And so then you slip a bit. And if anyone asks for my advice, what I recommend to listeners is think about the first things to go when your mental health starts to suffer. And once you notice them, talk to people around you and ask them as well to point out. But for me, the things that go is I will not cook, for example. I will go out and get a pizza from the shop. Even if I've got the ingredients to cook, I'd go to shop and get a frozen pizza to do instead because there's an element of comfort, there's an element of easiness. But that's when I see that happening, I also then try and make the effort to step away from myself for a second and go, actually, I can see my mental health isn't doing amazingly at the minute. So what can I do to change that? Is it talk to someone? Is it do a nice activity? Is it going to run or a range of things? But at the minute, I'm plodding along because I think we've got no choice. We are staying in to save lives. I've worked with doctors for last year. I know that I have to make the sacrifice I'm making to help other people stay alive. And they're the same sacrifices I expect others to take so that they can keep my family alive as well. 
And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? I mean, I have periods of depression, periods of anxiety. And again, it affects me because I know the person I can be. And when I'm suffering, I'm not the person I can be. That makes it super challenging that, do you know what I mean? You say to a partner, I am this person. You say to friends, I am this person. And then you can't demonstrate it for whatever reason. And it affects your work. I've just started a new job and everyone wants to know a bit about you, know how you are. And been feeling a bit crappy. And I've told them. They've all been very good, but I think it wasn't the answer they were hoping for. It wasn't the answer they were expecting. But that's something else that we have to deal with as well, like asking someone how they are and listening. And so, yeah, the depression gets me because I struggle to motivate myself. I struggle to understand my own self-worth, my own value to others. And the anxiety that affects my sleep, it affects my exercise, it affects my ability to focus on tasks. And when you're doing things like writing books, that is obviously a huge challenge. What age do you think you were, Dom, when you first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I'd say sort of early 20s that life for me and I think for a lot of people is a bit frantic until then because we don't talk about it. You don't understand what mental health is back in my day, like I'm a you know, I'm a 50-year-old, but there wasn't the mental health education in schools. I don't know what it's like now. I sincerely hope it's a lot better, but there wasn't mental health education and thus you felt very unaware of your feelings and yet sort of left university and, and you realise that this isn't normal anymore. Life has changed. Life has calmed down a little bit. That this frantic sense of heightened emotions or dulled emotions you're feeling isn't just because of your studies, just because you're going out all the time, just because of this and the other. And so you become potentially more aware of it and in time you become more able to examine it. And I think it's about recognising mental health, it's about looking at the challenges you're facing, it's about not beating yourself up. I wish my mental health was a bit better. Am I kicking myself because during a global pandemic I haven't got the best mental health? No, because I'm fine with that disappointing but that's life tell me a bit about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health who was it with what impact did it have and did you feel like a part of you had changed or a massive burden had been lifted off your shoulders or did it seem fairly insignificant and normalized and to be honest i can't really remember i don't think it was one thing i think it was a case of talking to People like my mum, people like my sister, who they're both very emotionally intelligent women. They're both very loving, very wonderful. And my sister trained in mental health and has worked as a mental health professional. So she was very attuned with it. And I think for being me, I often try to avoid those conversations because particularly when one is a young man, one isn't that keen on looking vulnerable, feeling vulnerable you think you can power through and I can totally understand why male suicide rates are so high because I think there's that sense of bravado that you can 
carry on through, that you can persist, you can stiff up a lip it, but eventually it can catch up with you. One can't run forever. And so I was very lucky that I had wonderful family members who persisted with me. With regards to friends and so on, I think by the time I started talking about it, the conversation amongst my age type people, the mental health became so normalised so quickly that it was almost a bit like you were the one left out if you didn't have something to share. And I think that's amazingly empowering that, you know what I mean, I can talk to you today and not worry about the reaction from any of my peers. I don't have that fear anymore. But I know a lot of people do have that fear because I know that society isn't built to support people with mental health challenges and society isn't built to... Do you know what I mean? We've still got a generation of people who are working who tell you that you should just get on with it. That back in my day, dot, 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 we just got on with it. Back in your day, people used to become alcoholics. People used to abuse their partners. People... I mean, people still do all those things. I'm not saying it's that's a generational... But, I mean, life was very different. That if you heard a husband beating a wife through a wall, you complained about the noise. You didn't complain about the beating. That's what society was. And now, thankfully, in a lot of places, that's changed. That you would immediately call the police. You'd intervene. You'd take action. And I think with mental health, that's changing that years ago, people would be a bit sad. Women would have postnatal depression and have to carry on and do what society expected of them as a mother. Whereas now people can take the time, people can get the support and it's evolution. And it's really sad that so many lives have been lost. So many lives have been ruined while waiting for that evolution to happen. But I'm confident it is happening and it's ongoing and it will keep on getting better. What triggers do you have, Dom, that affect your mental health, both positively and negatively? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I don't particularly have any triggers for negative. But life is a very complex thing. And one has the armour to cope with different things at different times. Like, I faced being unemployed again just before Christmas that my contract was running out on the 31st of December and until the 16th of December I didn't have a new job to go to and I was facing unemployment but I was doing it with a spring in my step whereas unemployment was a trigger for me for years and that fear of it was whereas now I felt very much in control very much able to cope with it myself and I think yeah the things that get me down change but for me that's the nature of mental health it's not an emotional thing I think for me that's what I want to convey to and through the book wanted to convey to football fans football professionals that it's not an emotional thing for a lot of people it's not like I don't know something bad happened and I'm sad you know I mean something difficult happened so I'm anxious I was sat there watching tv and absolutely nothing happened and now I feel depressed I have good things in my life and I feel anxious. That people need to understand that mental health is a very complex thing. And so, yeah, for me, I don't have triggers that I'm aware of. Things that make me feel better that I try to do, it depends how quickly I've noticed that I'm sliding. That sometimes it can be reading a book, it can be putting some good music on, it can be going for a run, it can be writing, it can be 
anything really. It's difficult to say because I don't want people to think there's a one way. You know what I mean? If you like sitting and playing computer games, do that. People say go out and do some exercise, but do what makes you happy and do that throughout life. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Dom, and hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and positive masculinity will just be masculinity. What would you define as toxic masculinity and positive masculinity? And what examples can you give that you can share with the listeners of either of them? I think you're more optimistic than me about toxic masculinity going, because I think it's bred. Like, how many people are told that girls mature two years faster than boys? Everyone in school. Like, I, until recently, thought it was a fact. I thought it was a scientific evidence-based fact. It's a crock of crap based on giving young boys an excuse to act like little sods and expecting women to nurture them from the age of four. It's an excuse for young boys to get away with pulling girls' hair and twanging their bra straps. And that turns into an excuse to not take no for an answer. Or, yeah, but she said no, but she kind of said it with like a naughty glint in her eyes, so that's okay. And then that goes into, yeah, but she was drunk, she was wearing a short skirt, it's fine. And then that turns into, I'm sorry, I won't hit you again. Everything steps up that that whole boys will be boys culture of life has to stop for toxic masculinity to stop. Then what I've tried to do with my book in the field of mental health is say toxic behavior around mental health is wrong. And I want to demonstrate to you why. Whereas I think so much of society, we just tell people that something is wrong and expect them to change without explaining why. But I think people like the boys will be boys crap. People love to get little boys tractors and fire engines and soldiers and guns and stuff like that. And they love to get little girls pink and Barbies and dollhouses because that's what they had and because grandparents and great-grandparents want them to be dressed in pink, dressed in blue and things like that. From such an early age, it creates them. I think we'll see the end to it in two generations because I think that there's a lot of people who are aware of it, who are aware of the challenges. And as people become more open, more honest, that we are getting to a stage where it's impossible to ignore how many women have been sexually abused? How many women have had sexual relations forced upon them, whether that be rape or sexual assault? And beyond that, how many women have ever been inappropriately touched or spoken to in a sexual manner? And thankfully, women are being extraordinarily brave and talking out about it, often a personal risk and to go back to the very early things we said that people are almost immune now to rape threats online because it is so common but all of this leads me to believe that this sort of toxic masculinity is going through its sort of death throes and it's going to change but sadly i think it's going to need them to die out rather than evolve and just finally dom what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to. I think we have to demonstrate that we can listen 
for starters, that this is one thing that I've learned over the last year in particular, through the process of writing the book and through my personal life, is that things don't need solving. Some things do, like if a pipe is broken, that needs solving. But if someone says, I'm not feeling great, then you listen. You put down your phone, you listen, and you don't have to solve anything. You can listen and immediately relieve someone's burden. That, for a start, for me, is that we can learn to listen better. Because then once we can listen, once we demonstrate we can listen, people will become more receptive to talking to us. And then I think we have to stop with idle ridicule, that we forget idle ridicule and changes in language, that we forget that when we describe something as mental in a negative way, the person we're doing it to could have just been about to open up to you about their mental health challenges. And yet you've used a term that they will project onto themselves in a negative way. And that can cause real harm and it can put them off. You know, I mean, if it's taken someone 30 years to pluck up the courage to have that conversation, you may have buried it for another 30. Yeah, so I'd say listen and changes in language would be an amazing starting point for me. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Dom for being my special guest for this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll put a link to where you can buy it, get your head in the game if you want to purchase it for yourself and read all about it. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in to this episode of the pod. And if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Give us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very, very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.